And I love, if you were with us last week, that in verse 11 of this same chapter, when, when the women came back after hearing the angelic announcement that he is not here, why are you looking for the living among the dead? That it says the disciples, those who first were, who followed Jesus for three plus years, they said, this seems like nonsense. It's in your Bible, in verse 11. No way he rose. You guys have had the spices you were going to put on Jesus' dead carcass messed with your mind. That's not in the Bible, but you know. But I love that Scripture narrates this raw, honest human emotion. Aren't you glad that we don't shuffle those under the, the rug, but that God is big enough to handle our doubts and our concerns? He's big enough for us and our slow-headedness to finally grasp all that he has done in and through his son, Jesus. And so our goal as we walk through this chapter 24 together is that by the end, the only thing that will make sense is for us to jump in with all of our hearts that God has glorified his son, Jesus, that he is the ruler and king of the cosmos and of this world, that his kingdom has been inaugurated when he was enthroned on his gruesome death and vindicated through the power of his resurrection. And he is currently reigning and ruling at the right hand of his father. He has poured out his spirit. And the church now is charged with the wonderful vocation to mediate his love and peace and presence to all the earth. It's a wonderful journey. So the, the title of this message today is called Holy Heartburn. You see what I did there? Verse 31, we're not our hearts burning within us. I love the road to Emmaus story. It just might be one of the most profound stories in all of Scripture. Because no matter where you're at on your journey today, you can identify with what Cleopas and many scholars think his wife, if you read John's account in John 19, experienced as they were processing their grief, as they were processing the reality that they had hung all of their hopes on this Jewish rabbi, prophet, miracle worker, parable speaking man who was dead. And they're on this seven-mile journey trying to make sense which way is up. I mean, we put all of our chips on the shoulders of this man, and he was handed over and crucified and dead. And I love that this story is in the Scriptures because I don't know about you, but so often unhealth in my life and in our lives can happen when we don't properly go through the steps of grieving and of processing and bringing our thoughts and our doubts and not allowing them to be shoved down, but to lay them before the Lord in brutal honesty. And so my heart is that all of us would leave today with holy heartburn. And then you can take your Prilosec or whatever you want to later. I can't reiterate enough that no one saw this coming. We ended the message last Sunday with Peter wondering about what all of this meant in verse 12. And here on the same day of resurrection, we're picking up the story of two on a journey. And scripture tells us that they're walking about seven miles 
talking about what had happened, discussing, and Jesus rolls up. And verse 16 says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Isn't that interesting? We know that Jesus was bodily resurrected, but we know that his glorified resurrected body does not play by the rules of our bodies, right? (laughs) So something's happening here where they were kept from recognizing him. And before we go any further in the story, I want to say that, that one of the big lessons of our, of our text today, lesson number one, is that it takes God, say it takes God, to know God. Let me say that again. It takes God to know God. Did you know that scriptures tell us that there is a war over that's going on in this world and that the ruler of darkness, his sole agenda is to blind the hearts and minds and lives to the reality of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4, you can mark it down in your Bibles and study it later. It tells us that the God of this age, the lowercase God, the enemy, he is the one whose sole agenda is to blind the hearts, minds, and lives of humanity to the revelation of the love and redemption that has been made available through Jesus. And it says that all of us have sinned and entered into that place of dullness, of blindness. And so lesson number one is this. Never, ever, ever make light of the Lord's conviction in your life because it takes God to know God. They were kept from recognizing Jesus, and I'm telling you, so many of us can know, just like those Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day, they can know chapters by heart and memory and still miss Jesus. And I want to say lesson number one is that apart from God revealing his son to us, we too, like those on the road to Emmaus, will be blind to the reality of Jesus. It's not our choice when to all of a sudden decide, I'm going to now know and see God. It is always a response to him revealing God to us. This is why many times conviction can get a bad name and God's trying to, I'm telling you, conviction and awakening of your heart is the greatest gift that God can give humanity. When he's saying, by his spirit, I'm trying to show you something here if you'll open up and let me in. And he says, I love Jesus in verse 17. What are you guys talking about? (laughs) Verse 17, they stood still and they looked sad. Then one of them said to Jesus, his name was Cleopas, are you a stranger in Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have taken place in these days? Jesus said in verse 19, I love this. What things? I have to hit pause here, point number two. I love that he asked that. Do you think Jesus knew what happened in Jerusalem? (laughs) Point number two is this. God in Christ has come so close to us that no matter what grief or hopes that have been dashed, or heartache, or doubt, or frustration, or sorrow. It says that they were sorrowful. 
Jesus wants to actually hear that from you. Can you imagine if the arrangement was so that we had to get all of our ducks in a row and then we could approach God and just be all amazing and shiny and shimmery? I know. Thank you. I love that this far on the journey, Jesus obviously knows what just happened in Jerusalem, people. But what things, guys? And he makes a space for all of us through no matter what we're going through in any season of our life to speak out of our hearts and he is not going to be afraid or dismayed by what we have to share. I'm telling you, this is really good news. We've got a God who is really, really big but very, really approachable. What happened? Tell me them. I want to hear them from your perspective, he's saying. The things about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, mighty indeed, in power. But the chief priests and the leaders, they condemned him and they crucified him and he was, he was, he was dead. But we had hoped, verse 21, here's the real issue. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem, say redeem, Israel. And besides all of this, it's been three days since it took place and some women came back from our group and they shocked us. They were at his tomb this morning, they didn't find his body and they, said, they told him about the angels, that he was alive. They went to this tomb and they found it just as they told them. Lesson number three. We, we unpacked it a little bit last week. The way in which Jesus would bring about God's plan for redemption was a way in which no one saw happening. We had hoped, verse 20, that he was the one to redeem Israel. And I wonder how many times do you and I miss Jesus because we're looking for him to show up in ways that do not align with the way in which he lived his life. They miss the one who came in peace, the one who came and said, turn the other cheek, the one who came and disrobed and got low to wash the feet of his followers they were hoping for the one who would ride on the steed with a sword and destroy the enemy through, through outward force and coercion. Everyone thought that redemption was when the good guys spilled the blood of the bad guys, thus securing the freedom from tyranny and slavery. Everyone thought redemption via revolution. And that was the ambition of the hope of the people. Remember back to the gospel stories where John and uh, why I don't know why. Anyway, the brothers, James and John, thank you. Right, James and John, brothers? Who's the brothers? John, James, my goodness, I don't know. Look it up yourself. <laughs> James and John and John. Someone tell me the names of the brothers because I don't know why I can't. James and John, thank you. Wow. Woo! And their mom, hey, which one can sit at your right and your left? They think Jesus is going to roll up to Jerusalem out of the sheath of his divine sword holder. And, and then we're just making sure we've got a place at the right and the left and the revolution you're getting ready to bring. Right? And this, there was many uprisings and revolutions if you study history. Judas the, the Hammer, Judah the Hammer, Maccabeus, Simon the Star, uh, Simon Blair, all these guys in the hundred... 50 BC to all the way even after Jesus, there were revolutionaries who come to try to bring God's agenda through the sword. And so that's why they ask, we want to sit at your right and the left. They think he's rolling up to Jerusalem and he's going to do business. 
We had hoped, verse 20, that he was the one to redeem Israel. But Jesus saw redemption, the rescue from slavery and bondage, in an entirely different route, in an entirely different way. Jesus didn't come to spill the blood of the bad guys. He came to spill his own blood and through that blood and sacrifice to redeem us from all of the ways of earthly redemption by purchasing once and for all true freedom on the cross. Verse 20, he's letting them process. We had hoped he was the one to bring redemption. They're thinking sword, revolution. I love this. Scripture gives us four words for redemption in the New Testament. And they all unpack a different facet of all that God has done through his son, Jesus. The first word for redemption, which again, was their hope in Jesus in verse 20. The first idea of redemption is this, that Jesus Christ came to earth to find us in our lostness and personally inspect the reality of our condition as those who are enslaved by the enemy. He comes and he locates us in our sin. This is used numerous times in the New Testament for the word redemption. He comes and he finds out our true condition. The second word for redemption is this, is that Jesus not only comes and finds us in our lostness, but he comes and he permanently removes us from the power of Satan. That's a good one. It's one thing to locate us in our lostness, but it's a whole other thing that in our lostness to provide the rescue and the redemption and the escape from the power and the clutches of the enemy. I love this. It gets deeper and deeper. The third word for redemption, and I could show you the, the words, but later come look at the notes, is that Jesus not only locates us and removes us from Satan's power, but he also delivers us from Satan's dominion And then he brings us into a new ownership where we were once enslaved to sin. He brings us into the family of God. It goes deeper. And then fourth, I love this. The fourth word for redemption is that he not only locates us, removes us, brings us into new ownership, is that we are fully restored, joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. And Chatty, why all this stuff about redemption? And there's a billion verses. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped via revolution, via the sword, via like every other king that rolled up into Jerusalem brought victory through bloodshed. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about taking out the bad guys because there's going to be another bad guy that pops up when he gets off. It's about ending this thing once and for all by my sacrifice. Redemption via my blood. Jesus was ushering in his, God's redemptive purposes by becoming God's loving sacrifices. One theologian says it this way. The Jewish people were viewing all of their scriptures. They had been seeing it as a long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. Say, from suffering. Love it. Look at this. But it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. All of them were hoping for the guy 
tall like Saul, big, muscular, buff, huge sword, that God would deliver them from suffering. But all of the scriptures that he's getting ready to show them how to read now in light of who he is and what he's done is not that God would do it from, but God would deliver them through suffering, comma, through his own suffering. You see, not just, oh God, just deliver us, just like you did Moses through the Red Sea and it cost Egypt their firstborn and deliver us from suffering, see our tyranny. But Jesus is saying, nope, I'm not gonna do it from, I'm gonna do it by suffering with you, as you, alongside of you. And it's not just anyone suffering, it's the suffering of the one who himself can bring you that freedom. Back to Emmaus, I love this in verse 25. Jesus tells them after they share how bummed they are and sad and they had hoped that he was the one to bring redemption Jesus says, and it sounds a little bit harsh, but Jesus can do that and get away with it. How foolish you are, verse 25, and how, look at this language, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And these guys got the best sermon ever preached. Then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. In other words, these two, probably Cleopas and his wife Mary, if you read John's gospel, probably. This married couple got to have Jesus walk through two-thirds of your and I's Bible, explaining to them all of the ways in which they all pointed to what he was about to do. Unfair, if you ask me. How foolish you are and how slow of heart, he says. At face value, this can seem like he's just, a, he's just grumpy because he's hungry. He's been dead for three days. Remember, he's going to eat fish here in a minute in the next story. Anyway. But how many of us would say, man, I, I, I can be slow of heart to believe the promises of God? How many of us would say, I've heard it a thousand times, but I still... I may confessionally believe it to be true, but operationally it doesn't influence and impact my life. How many struggle with a slow heart sometimes to come around to actually living in light of what God has made available for us through Jesus? Now let me tell you this. Jesus was not doing this like so many of us modern preachers can do. He wasn't cherry-picking a few of his favorite verses and then conglomerating this huge thing and saying, see, look, it talks about me. Right? Jesus is taking the entire story in the Hebrew Bible, unlike ours, it was broken into three sections the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Minor Prophets, and then the writings. It was broken into three sections. Ours is four, because we follow the, the Greek translation, the Septuagint. But here's why this is significant. Jesus is not just saying this verse applies to me and this. Jesus to this couple is saying, if you don't understand that the whole thing is pointing to me and to the reality in which I would fulfill and usher in, you're going to miss all of it. By this he meant the entire story has perpetually been pointing to me. This is just, I'm, I'm just a pastoral moment right now. It says in the last days that many people will gather in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, gather around a bunch of teachers to give them what their itchy ears want to hear, but then they'll no longer put up with sound doctrine. Here's what I want to tell you as your pastor. 
if what someone's trying to tell you doesn't ultimately hinge upon and hang on and rest on and reinforce the person and work of Jesus Christ, they are not a messenger of God. Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus takes the entire Old Testament, the writings, the prophets, and the Torah, two-thirds of our Bible, and he says, guys, it's all about me. So if someone comes and they say, I have special revelation, or I have this new little teaching, or I'm just telling you, if it ain't dripping with Jesus, it is not the heartbeat of God. Jesus gave us a tool. Jesus gave Cleopas and probably Mary a lens through which to view all of Scripture, and he said this, in essence, it's all about me. I love it. I was Googling. There's some amazing resources online. Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus in Genesis is the seed of the woman. Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. Leviticus, he's our sanctifier. You get what I'm going all the way through. Just Google Jesus in the scriptures. This is really cool. The point is he's on every page. He is the one to whom all of the scriptures point. Jesus points out to this couple on Emmaus. That all of it, and he unveils the scriptures that pointed to the reality that God would save us and redeem us through his own suffering. And Luke is telling us right here in his gospel, we can only recognize Jesus when we realize that the whole story of God in Israel points to Jesus. It's amazing. Jesus has this power encounter with the Pharisees and the religious uh, leaders in John 5, 39, and, and Jesus goes to them, and his heart is just broken because they think they're sons of Moses and Abraham. They think they're goody two-shoes and following the rules, and Jesus says, guys, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in and of themselves they are what give you life, but Jesus says in verse 40, but you fail to come to me, the one to whom they all point. Yeah, that's right. He's saying all of them, all of them. The stories, the sacrifices, the deliverance, the manna that came down in the desert, the rock that came from the, the water that came from the rock. You can just see throughout the entire story are types and shadows and figures of the reality that was coming through this man born of a woman under the law to redeem us and to be the crescendo and climax of God's redemptive story for the world saying, guys, if you don't read your Bible with this in mind, you'll misread the Bible. Another thing, if you're taking notes, there's just a great new Bible that the New Living Translation just released called the Jesus-Centered Bible. It's really, really cool. I gave my copy away. I'm going to buy another one because now I just remembered I gave it away. But it, again, highlights all of the ways in which Jesus is just spread throughout the entire Old Testament. Beautiful way to read the scriptures and to see that it really is all about Jesus. What's amazing to me is this. Before what we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, Pentecost, when God poured out his spirit, the disciples fumbled and bumbled and they obviously didn't see how much Jesus was the thread throughout all of scripture. But after they were filled with the spirit and God opened their hearts and their minds and their eyes, if you read the book of Acts, which I encourage you to do here in a few weeks, amazing, all they could do was connect the dots. When they preached their messages, all they did was preach Old Testament scriptures. Obviously, that's all they had. There was no New Testament. But how their eyes were open to see that, man, this really is all about Jesus. 
And I want to encourage us, for those of us who struggle with the Old Testament, man, read it again. Pray with open heart, open eyes, and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the one to whom they point all throughout. First Peter tells it like this, concerning this salvation, what salvation? The redemption that Jesus has made available. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when they predicted the sufferings of Christ. Peter narrates for us what's happening in the heart of the Old Testament prophets. They all saw by the Spirit 700 years, 800 years, 600 years before Jesus rolls onto the scene. The Holy Spirit was resting upon them as they prophesied and wrote of the prediction of the sufferings of God. And it says that they saw this one who was coming to suffer, Peter tells us, but it was revealed to them that they were speaking of the things that have now been announced through the preaching of the gospel. In other words, Peter, you know, 700 years after Isaiah gave us all these unbelievable prophecies of Jesus' suffering and his servanthood and his death and his life and his vindication and resurrection, Peter's telling us this, that it, it was revealed to them that the things they saw, Peter now says, are the things, the fulfillment of what we preach. They found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So what is scripture about? Jesus. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon has an awesome quote. All roads lead to Jesus in the scriptures. Again, watch out for false teachers that want to try to derail you and it's about this and about that. No, 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 no. It is about Jesus. Amen. And all Jesus Christ. I love Hebrews chapter one, man. This is my favorite passage. One of them. I say that every sermon. In the past, God spoke to us in many times and in various ways, through the prophets, through angels, through all this stuff. But in these last days, someone say last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is. Who he was, who he is, what he accomplished, who he is now as our great intercessor, praying for us to overcome and not shrink back and the one who is soon returning for his bride. Let's keep going back to Emmaus. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on. Jesus is a stinker. I love, sorry, Lord. Look at him. Hmm, nice talking to you and giving you the whole Old Testament, how to read it through a Christ-centered view. Hey, you want to come eat? I and mean, this is what he's doing. Why? Because he loves to be invited in. Are you tracking with me? Oh, we want you, Jesus, but just in your own timing, come. No, 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 no. He loves it when we hunger for his presence. Thank you, Samuel. Come on. They urged him strongly. I love that. Stay with us. It's almost night. The day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table... We're almost done. This is, I love this. He took the bread. Sound familiar? He blessed it. He broke it. And then he gave it. Then, someone say then, their eyes were opened. And the one they were kept from recognizing in verse 16, no longer. Their eyes were opened. 
And they recognized him. And I love this. Again, he has the glorified body, totally physical, real bodily resurrection. But it doesn't play by our physical rules on this age. He vanishes from their sight. That's going to be cool someday. Eating fish, vanishing, walking through walls. Anyway, someday. He vanished. I think it's so significant. This can't be overstated. It was when he broke the bread. Hospitality leads to relationship. Stay with us. And relationship leads to revelation. Our eyes were opened. They made a space for Jesus in their home. And by providing a space and a place and a context, Jesus shows up. And when he breaks that bread, what did he just do a few days before with his disciples? This is my body. I love this story because it has forever forged faith and food together. Their eyes were not open just because Jesus unfolded the scriptures. I'm telling you, that, was, that must have been unbelievable, and we're getting ready to hear about the holy heartburn. But their eyes were opened when God in Christ becomes the head of our dinner table. And he takes our meager bread, and he breaks it, blesses it, and gives it. It was not a message that opened their eyes. It was a meal. I want you to think back to the first meal of Scripture that we hear narrated. What was it? Genesis 3, when they ate the... What happened when they ate that fruit? Their eyes were open too. Come on, you got to see this because Jesus is bringing new creation. They eat and their eyes are open, but their recognition is that they're naked and they need to hide. Here, Jesus in resurrection offering us God's new world, new creation. This is the first meal of new creation, breaks the bread. What happens to the couple? Just like probably Adam and Eve, this is Mary, probably Mary and Cleopas again. Many think there's two of them. When they eat, their eyes are open, but now it's not to their nakedness. It's to the reality of Jesus. First Rebellion, first meal, death, decay, separation, and shame. Resurrection, first meal, <laughs> eyes are open. New creation. The world doesn't play by the rules of the old world. Now in and through me, I'm making all things new. All things new. It was the meal. The first meal was the result of the fall. The second meal was a witness and a demonstration and a proclamation that new creation is breaking out right here, right now. And they said to each other, verse 32, after he vanished, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? <laughs> while he was opening the scriptures to us, point number five, 
when you do your devotions and when you listen to the scriptures, there's so many resources, oh my goodness, to help you walk with Jesus that are available everywhere, anywhere. But central to all of it, I want you to begin to view your time with God, whether it's audio Bible, listening, books, devotional, worship, whatever you do, do all of it. It's amazing. But ask God to open your heart and mind to the scriptures. You're like, duh, Chad, duh. No, not duh. Many times we try to get there on our own, but God wants to open the book to us so that when we read it, our lives are totally transformed and changed. That same hour, they got up and they returned to Jerusalem seven miles back because <laughs> they found the 11 and their companions gathered. They said, guys, the Lord has risen indeed. Then they told what had happened on the road, but how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. New creation. We had hoped, verse 20, that he was the one to bring redemption. Oh, guys, I am. See this bread that's broken? Yeah, that points to me. No one saw it coming. It was about being redeemed out of and from suffering. No one saw that the one who would bring redemption, bring deliverance, would himself suffer on our behalf. No one saw it coming. But Jesus, to, to the two on the road, takes two-thirds of our Bible, the Old Testament, we call it, and how the whole thread of the story, it was pointing to him. And that through his death on the cross, and his resurrection demonstrated in this meal, Jesus is saying, it's all about me. I fulfilled it. I'm alive. Jesus. Meal and message. Food and faith. Relationship and revelation. They belong together. If this was the means through which Jesus was revealed to the two on the road, then this is a good enough strategy for our day and our time. Do you have a kitchen table? Shake your head at me. Or some place that you share a meal? Shake your head at me. It's okay if you don't have a kitchen table. You know how to make food or at least where to find it? Do you have friends, people in your life that you have influence with, commonality with? Have your eyes been opened like Cleopas and the other on the road? If not, they can be today. Apparently, if you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what Jesus modeled here, the early church did all the time. They opened their homes. They prayed. They reflected on how Jesus is the fulfiller of all of the scripture. They broke bread. You can just read it there in Acts 2, 42. What Jesus did here. Believers have been doing for thousands of years. That's right. And I wonder, 
many times for us who want to make an impact on our neighborhoods or our world, we get so complicated and we disqualify ourselves because we don't know enough Bible verses or But I would just suggest if you've got a kitchen table, some decent food, and your eyes have been opened to Jesus, why don't you just start with a meal? And like Jesus, start with a question. How are you? Do you have to go back to the road to Emmaus? What is Jesus doing to them? He knows what happened in Jerusalem, but he makes a space for them by asking them a question about what's going on in their heart. Now, raise your hand with me if you think you could do that. I'm not downplaying it that we have to have courage and faith to open our homes and love people that may know God or don't know God, but I want to bring it down to this world because Jesus did. And I wonder how many of us, if we began to view our homes, the front door of our house, as the front door to the church, our tables, not just as a place to get nutrients and then move on, but a place to host and have the very person and presence of God ministering grace and healing to those around our table. Isn't that cool? I mean, that apparently it's stuck because we've been doing it for thousands of years. He opened the Bible. He gave them their scriptures back and he gave them a very specific lens through which to read all of it. Read it through what I have done, Jesus said. He allows them, because he was going to pass them, to invite him into their house, into their space. And then he takes the place of host. He blesses and breaks and he gives the bread. Today, Jesus is here to give you his life through his provision, through his grace, and through his mercy. And then ultimately, we're going to leave this place Most of us will probably go eat a big old helping of food. But like my friend Hal asked me about Easter, what if we began to view Jesus around our table with us and we leaned into those moments by asking questions and by serving to those around us who maybe are close to God are far, but we made a space for them to receive and encounter his grace and his love. Faith and food, they belong together. (laughs) The message is clearly demonstrated through the meal. Relationship, they made a space, will lead to revelation. Man, there is no one like Jesus. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. He is the very reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He currently and forever sustains all things by his powerful word and through his sacrifice has made purification for sins a present reality for all who will just open their heart and life and surrender to his love. So, I don't know who you are in the story, Cleopas or the unnamed journeyer, but I know that Jesus 
is walking with you. And he wants to come into your house and he wants to come into your life and he wants to bring all that you hope, your finances, your friends, your pedigree, your reputation, all that you hope will provide that place of satisfaction that will meet the deepest longings of your heart. Jesus invites you through the bread and he says, let me be enough. Let me be the one who brings you your value. Let me be the one who transforms your life because if you have my approval, it doesn't really matter what they or them or they. But I want you to know that through my blood, the Father invites you into relationship.